And so our reading this evening is from Ephesians chapter 2, and it's the first ten verses. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed to us in his kindness in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. How important do you think you are to God? How much do you matter to him? Does he really care about you? What value does God place on your life? And does he make a distinction between different kinds of people, favouring some more than others? And what criteria do you think he uses to assess the value or importance of different people's lives? I mean, do I qualify for preferential treatment because I'm a minister? What about those of us who lead worthwhile, productive lives and endeavour to live in accordance with the Ten Commandments? Does our lifestyle mean that God looks on us with any extra degree of favour? That he values us and prizes us more than, say, the riffraff who don't bother quite so much? Because what about those lives? What about those people whose lives are just a mess? Unlovely and unlovable, some of them. People whose hearts are filled with hatred and anger. People who are violent or dishonest or deceitful. The people behind the Bitcoin thing that grounded the NHS at the back end of last week. How does God feel about them? The beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 opens with a pretty unflattering portrait of humanity. People who follow the ways of this world and obey the devil. People who are ruled by the selfish desires of their bodies and their minds. People for whom the only thing that counts is what they want and what they need and who are, in consequence of that, quite impossible to live with. Well, they are described as children of wrath. A clear enough indication that how they live makes God angry. 
in and of themselves, there would appear to be nothing to make God favourably disposed towards them. And yet, and yet, Paul asserts clearly and unambiguously that even these people, God loves them. Loves them dearly. And shows them mercy. And goes a step beyond that, actually. He goes so far as to say that when it comes to sinning, we are all in exactly the same boat. The best of us and the worst of us. At some point, all of us have followed our natural inclinations and lived self-indulgent lives so that by nature, alongside the worst of criminals, left to our own devices in and of ourselves, we are also, by nature, children of wrath. Living in leafy, respectable portion as you do. You might balk a bit at that. You might kind of run through a mental checklist on your past life and think, actually, I don't think I've been all that bad. But the question is, does that make God feel any differently about you? If you think, I've not been all that bad, does that qualify you for preferential treatment in some way? Think about it for a moment. If God's favour towards you is dependent on how you behave, then how is he going to feel about you on one of those bad days? Because we all get them, don't we? If the levels of his love and his mercy vary in proportion to the moral quality of our lives so that he loves us more on our better days then we really are in trouble when it comes to our bad days. Because it's on our bad days that we really need his love and his mercy and his grace. Hang about that. Doesn't Paul talk about God getting angry with us? So he's angry with us and yet he loves us. And before you start wondering whether God is suffering from some kind of schizophrenia, Let's be clear that anger and love are not incompatible. If God didn't care for us, he wouldn't get angry with us. That sounds a bit counterintuitive, but it's true. He'd simply shrug his shoulders and leave us to get on with it. Don't care about them. Just leave them. Forget it. Because he cares, he becomes emotionally involved in our lives and what we do and is angered when he sees us causing damage to other people that he loves. It's because he cares that what we do matters to him. And when we do stuff, particularly stuff that inflicts pain or suffering on other people who are people whom God loves, then that makes God angry. And rightly so. And if he gets angry with us because we hurt and harm and damage other people, does that mean he sides with them against us and he stops loving us and starts loving them? Not at all. He loves us when we are perpetrators of evil on other people. He loves us when we are victims of what other people say and do to us. 
He loves us all. When he gets angry, that doesn't mean he stops loving us. His love means that when he gets angered by what we say and do, he chooses to respond in mercy and grace, offering us forgiveness. And forgiveness is not the same as saying, oh, it doesn't matter, it's all right, it's not a problem. Because if it doesn't matter, there's nothing to forgive. If we do stuff that matters, it matters enough sometimes to grieve God's heart and make him angry. And even though it does that to God's heart, the love means his heart is full of grace and forgiveness towards us. Because he loves us. So there will be times when what we say and do to others makes God angry, whether we do it by ignorance or weakness or our own deliberate fault. But his anger never displaces his love towards us. Whatever we do, however much we might grieve him or provoke him, his love to us is absolutely constant and unchanging. In that sense, his love is indiscriminate. God doesn't love you more on your good days. God doesn't love the person sitting next to you tonight because they're a better person than you are. It's when we get it wrong that we need God's love and mercy the most. And precisely because he loves each and every one of us on our good days and our bad days with a love that is constant, whoever we are, whatever we've done, it's because that is true that God saves us by grace. By grace. Grace is a really important word. Paul uses it a couple of times in this passage. He actually repeats the same phrase because it's so important. It is By grace you have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved. So when our lives are in total chaos, when our past is a source of shameful memories and deep regrets, when our heart is full of harmful emotional baggage, and we see no meaning or value or purpose in our lives at all, the good news is that even though we are in such a mess, we are saved by the grace of God towards us. God choosing to respond to us in goodness and in constant love and forgiveness. And revealing that to us conclusively through his son Jesus Christ who laid down his life to demonstrate God's saving love towards us. doesn't matter what skeletons we've got in the cupboard of our lives. God knows them. And he loves us anyway. And if you have been a good, honest, upright citizen of Horsham, Someone who would never hurt a fly. Someone who is always kind and considerate and gentle every single day of your life. If such a person exists and they happen to be listening to this sermon, then get this, you are saved by grace as well. 
you are saved in exactly the same way and on the same basis as the most hardened criminal. How does that work? Well, Paul makes the point quite explicitly that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one has any reason to boast. Because there's no room in God's kingdom for an attitude that says, oh, I'm better than you are. You were saved by grace, but actually I got in because of the kind of person that I am. There's no harm in taking pride in your achievements, but there is no room for any air of superiority. No room for looking down on anyone else from our own moral high ground. Because as soon as we start to look down on anybody else, the moral high ground on which we've taken our stand starts to disintegrate beneath our feet. To think that I can be saved on the basis of how well I'm doing is to make the mistake of thinking that the value God places on my life depends on the quality of life that I lead. And that's not true. That's not true at all. God values you and loves you and treasures you because he made you and you belong to him. And that goes for the best and the worst of us. God has not set some arbitrary pass mark of 50% and he values and treasures those who make it and he jettisons those who don't. Because that would be arbitrary. So everybody is treated the same way and everybody is saved only on the single basis of grace. God's free and generous gift of forgiveness to us. However much, however little, we might deserve that. doesn't matter. Because his decision to extend forgiveness to us is not based on how well we do, how close to the mark we get, but on his love for each and every one of us. Whoever we are, the best of us, the worst of us, the good, the bad and the ugly, we are all saved on the same basis, the grace of God freely, generously given to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. What does being saved mean exactly anyway? It's a good question. In Ephesians 2, Paul uses vivid metaphors to describe the difference that Jesus makes to our lives. It's as if you were dead in your transgressions and sins, he says. That's because sin is so corrosive and destructive of life. The more you indulge sinful desires, the more diminished you become as a person. The pursuit of pleasure tends to leave people feeling more and more empty inside. So as you give out in grace to others that your soul is replenished. When I was growing up, my father used to say to me, you do whatever you want to do, young man, he used to say. It was bad advice, especially knowing how selfish I can be. Because if we all do whatever we want to do, without paying attention to anybody else, then that just has catastrophic consequences for other people 
whose needs and wants we disregard in favour of our own. So referring to people as being dead is vivid imagery for the destructive consequences of a sinful lifestyle. But Paul refers to salvation as being brought back from death into life. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God has made you alive with Christ. You have life in all its fullness in Jesus. Salvation is all about Jesus identifying with us. He died on the cross, identifying himself with us in our sinfulness and our mortality so that we can be identified with him in resurrection and new life. He enters our death to bring us out of death into his life. The first two chapters of Ephesians are structured in such a way that what is true of Jesus in chapter 1 becomes true of us in chapter 2. So in chapter 1, Paul explains how Christ died for us. And goes on to explain in chapter 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In a display of supernatural strength and power, God raised Jesus from the dead. And he's raised us from death to life with him. And just as Christ is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, so Paul says that we also are seated with him in the heavenly places. In Christ, we take our seats far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, save that of him and him alone. That means, in essence, we get our lives back. If we have lost control of who we are somewhere along the line, if we become the victims of some kind of spiritual identity theft, so that our lives have become dominated by powers outside of our control, Jesus gives us our life back again. What kind of powers is Paul talking about here? He lived and worked in a culture where people were all too aware of spiritual forces that influenced or could even guide or direct or determine people's lives. People were afraid of such powers, particularly in the part of the country where Ephesus was. They were constantly looking for ways of trying to get these powers on their side. We might dismiss such beliefs as primitive superstition. But these days, doing something like reading your horoscope can still give such powers, as exist in the spiritual realm, a measure of control over your heart and mind and even over what might happen to you. Such things might not be part of your worldview, but that doesn't mean that we should not take their existence seriously. You meddle with the occult at your peril. In his commentary, and his best suggests other forces and powers outside of our control that can determine our identity in negative ways. It's an interesting list. He cites the pressures of society, which if not wholly evil are not wholly good. Poverty. Upbringing and environment. Genetic constitution. Even physical disability. 
economic decisions taken at a distance. These are wider than the spiritual atmosphere of a culture and they exercise compulsion on those who are subject to them. Yet if Paul is right in asserting that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that means our lives are no longer subjected to the control of these forces. That takes some getting your head around, particularly when he talks about things like physical disability or genetic constitution in his list of things to which people have become subject. It's abundantly clear that becoming a Christian does not remove all physical disabilities. And anyone who tries to tell you that it does is just plain wrong. But what being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms means is that our lives, who we are, is, are no longer determined by the factors he mentions. We are not defined by our upbringing or by any of the lists of things he mentioned by the powers that have control over us. What defines us is who we are in Christ. And whatever else might affect me, in Christ I know there is more to me than that. I am not controlled by my social status, or by my upbringing, or even I am not defined by my health. It's a bold assertion to make on Paul's part. And you might wonder how on earth he backs it up. He would assert it's true of us, because it's true of Christ. And if we are in Christ, then what is true of him, it is true of us. And that assertion is backed up by the resurrection power of Christ and the recognition that he is exalted as Lord over all. So if you've lost control of your life, if you've lost the sense of who you are, Jesus is the one to give it back to you. He is the one to lift you up and give you an identity as you are in him, not defined by some other hostile or indifferent force outside of your control. The essence of the good news is is that if you've lost control of who you really are, Jesus has the power and the authority to recover that and resume control of it for you. And you can trust him. Because irrespective of whether your life is a success or a failure, he loves you and you are saved by grace through faith. And faith... Faith is simply trusting in Christ. When we look at ourselves and see the failures and the inadequacies and the doubts and our fears and the things about us that we know make us unlovable, faith is looking away from ourselves to Jesus who declares, you are accepted. You are forgiven. You are loved. You belong to me. I have a plan and a purpose for you. I will never let you go for eternity. Faith is looking away from ourselves to Christ, knowing that the value and the importance of your life does not depend on your success or on your failure, but on his constant, unchanging, steadfast love to you, on the good days and the bad days. His mercy for you when you get it wrong. His power to redeem you from destructive patterns of behaviour and to give you your life back. And he does that because of his grace, which is his steady, constant, unwavering goodness towards you. 
If you are looking for someone to lead you out of death and into life, then Jesus is the one to do it. If you're looking for a firm basis for living and security in who you are, then Jesus is the one to deliver that. Because he loves you no matter what. He laid his life down for you. He rose again to bring you out of death into life. He is seated at the right hand of God where all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He can lift you up and raise you up with him. And his grace towards you is constant and unchanging. How do we respond to him? What do we need to do? If you want to make a response to him tonight, perhaps for the first time, perhaps you've done it before, but you know you, you need to get close to Christ again, entrusting who you are, all of it, the good, the bad and the ugly into his hands, you might like to use the words of our closing hymn, What Grace Is Mine? The offer of his grace holds true for you. Because he promised that whoever comes to him, he would never turn away. So it doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter where you've been. If you need saving, Jesus who died for you, who rose again for you, who reigns on high for you, he's the one in whom you need to put your trust. Because he's your Lord, he's your Saviour, and you are saved by grace, through faith. Thanks be to God.